0: and 365-day returns.
1: The
2: Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
3: Thursday morning, the 15th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM.
1: The Cabinet has just had a long detailed and impassioned debate on the draft withdrawal agreement and the outline political declaration on our future relationship with the European Union. These documents were the result of thousands of hours of hard negotiation by UK officials and many, many meetings which I and other ministers held with our EU counterparts. I firmly believe that the draft withdrawal agreement was the best that could be negotiated and it was for the cabinet to decide whether to move on in the talks. The choices before us were difficult, particularly in relation to the Northern Ireland backstop. But the collective decision of Cabinet was that the government should agree the draft withdrawal agreement and the outline political declaration. This is a decisive step which enables us to move on and finalise the deal in the days ahead. These decisions were not taken lightly, but I believe it is a decision that is firmly in the national interest. When you strip away the detail, the choice before us is clear. This deal, which delivers on the vote of the referendum, which brings back control of our money, laws and borders, ends free movement, protects jobs, security and our union, or leave with no deal or or no Brexit at all. I know that there will be difficult days ahead. Uh, this is a decision which will come under intense scrutiny, and that is entirely as it should be and entirely understandable. But the choice was this deal, which enables us to take back control and to build a brighter future for our country, or going back to square one with more division, more uncertainty and a failure to deliver on the referendum. It's my job as Prime Minister to explain the decisions that the government has taken And I stand ready to do that, beginning tomorrow with a statement in Parliament. But if I may end by just saying this, I believe that what I owe to this country is to take decisions that are in the national interest. And I firmly believe, with my head and my heart, that this is a decision which is in the best interests of our entire United Kingdom.
3: British Prime Minister Theresa May in London that statement after a marathon cabinet meeting announcing the government's agreement to the draft Brexit withdrawal agreement. The decision was welcomed in Brussels by the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier. We have
4: now found a solution together with the UK to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. First, We will use our best endeavors to solve this issue for the long term through a future agreement. If we are not ready by July 2020, we could jointly consider extending the transition to provide for more time. Only if, at the end of the transition, extended or not, we are still not there with a future agreement would the backstop solution that we agreed today kicking. This backstop solution has evolved considerably from the original EU proposal from February this year. Over the last few weeks, we have worked with the UK on the basis of their proposal. In the backstop scenario, we agreed to create the EU-UK single customs territory. Northern Ireland will therefore remain in this same customs territory as the rest of the UK. In addition, Northern Ireland would remain aligned to those rules of the single market that are essential for avoiding our border. This concerns, agriculture goods, as well as all products, the UK would apply the EU's customs code in Northern Ireland it would allow northern Irish businesses to bring goods in the single market without without restrictions,
3: which is essential to avoid In Dublin, the Taoiseach Leo Bradker said this was everything the Irish government had hoped for under the circumstances of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union.
5: We have reached a satisfactory outcome today. From day one, we sought to ensure that our concerns and priorities were understood by the EU institutions and other member states. We sought that they became European concerns and European priorities, and they did. European Council guidelines, communications from the Commission and resolutions of the European Parliament have consistently reflected this approach. They are proof positive of the solidarity of other Member States and the institutions with Ireland, and the enormous intangible value of being an EU Member State. The joint reports published last December met our objectives, and my goal since then has been to ensure that the legal text of the withdrawal agreement was faithful to the commitments therein. This evening, I'm pleased to report that that has been achieved. The legal text ensures that Ireland and the United Kingdom can continue to operate a common travel area between us and all of the related benefits for our citizens. We're working closely with the UK Government to ensure that this happens smoothly. The text also underpins the fundamental rights enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement and the birthright of citizens in Northern Ireland to identify as Irish and therefore as European citizens – and so to continue to enjoy the rights and freedoms that come with EU citizenship. Of course, avoiding a hard border has been one of the most difficult challenges. The December report envisaged that the best way to avoid a hard border was to agree a comprehensive future relationship that would render a border unnecessary. This is still our shared objective and preferred outcome. But we've always said that we'd also need what has become known as the backstop, and this is now fully spelt out in the draft withdrawal agreement. It, it envisages that the UK and the EU would establish a shared customs territory, with Northern Ireland applying some additional rules for goods to ensure that no need, for, no need for a border between North and South arises. The text makes clear that this backstop would apply unless and until a better solution is agreed. I firmly hope that we can achieve a better solution, and we'll be working strenuously to that end, but we do now now have the insurance policy of the backstop to apply if all other efforts fail to produce a better solution. We've also agreed a review mechanism for the backstop which will allow it to cease to apply if or when a better solution can be found, and it may cease to apply in part or in full. But the legal text says that this cannot be a unilateral decision. It can only be taken jointly by the United Kingdom and the European Union.
3: An optimistic, Leo Vratker, but this needs uh, the support of the British Parliament and uh, the Commons vote will hinge to some degree on the support of the DUP.
6: We will not be voting for something that will break up the United Kingdom. We've always been very clear about that. Uh, We understand that there are many people across the House who share our view, whether in Scotland uh, or indeed in England. There are many uh, people who voted to leave who feel very strongly about the fact that we want to keep the United Kingdom together Uh, Uh, Labour colleagues as well have been saying to us that they couldn't support this. So we believe that there is a coalition of MPs who will not support what we've been reporting uh, uh, is the deal. And of course I haven't seen the deal, I haven't seen the text, so I'll have to wait to see that.
3: DUP leader Arlene Foster putting a dampener on everything and proving that not all is sweetness and light. Let's hear from our political correspondent Sean Defoe now. Sean, what next?
7: Today is we're really going to see what the future for Theresa May is. I suppose there is a motion of no confidence potentially building in her. They need 48 signatures from the Tory party to actually get that and certainly some of the arch-Brexiteers are trying to muster that up so there would be a motion in in Theresa May. She has to go to the Commons today anyway to defend her plan and this morning we are hearing already one junior minister for Northern Ireland has resigned she'll take that casualty I think is fairly innocuous in the grand scheme of things and also Donald Tusk announcing this morning that an EU Council summit has been confirmed for 10 days time for November twenty fifth, so we're starting to see now the timeline of what's going to happen. She's going to go in, yeah. have to defend the deal today, and start whipping around political support. And on the twenty fifth, the EU will sign off on it, and then sometime in December is when that cu- crucial. Uh, Commons vote will
3: come. Uh, And it is possible that she'll survive uh, a vote of uh, confidence and remain on as leader of uh, the Conservative Party but that Commons vote is crucial and as Arlene Foster was saying uh, she believes that there is a coalition of people who are opposed to supporting this deal the DUP obviously, members of the Labour Party and hardcore Tory
2: Brexiteers.
7: Yeah there's all sorts of people lining up and for all sorts of reasons as well. So you've got the the Brexiteers who were probably not going to vote for any deal that the EU could stomach, so we kind of counted them out anyway. The DUP have said no, they're not going to do it. Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, has been out saying this is not a deal for them and they're not going to support it. There may of course be some rebels from the Labour Party, but listening to people in the UK, I reckon that will be a relatively small number given the deal. The SNP won't back it because they actually want the, uh, the deal that Arlene Foster doesn't want. They want those extra protections for Scotland rather than for Northern Ireland and the Lib Dems won't back it either so that leaves her in a very very difficult corner and she's also facing more opposition within her own party Mm. in the form of the Conservatives who voted for Remain because they now through this see a pathway when May has kind of hinted you know it's there's three options on the table: there's accept this deal, there's get rid of me and leader, her, go for an election, or there's don't accept this deal and we either crash into a no deal Brexit or a second referendum. So a few of them have gotten the wish that they might get a second vote, which could be entirely different. They, you know, they could vote to remain and stay within the EU. So there's some of them who will oppose it in the hope of that outcome. Uh, she needs about 320 votes in the Commons to do that. She has 315 odd Tories. So I've been doing the maths. If you take that, there's roughly 50-odd Brexiteers who won't vote for it, probably another 20 or 30 remainers who won't vote for it, I really don't see where she's getting the numbers to get this across. But you know, well, she may find, she may actually the find them in
3: the DUP. I, I take it. I mean, the DUP has laid out its stall. It's going to vote against this. It's not going to break up the union, but it'll have to go back uh, to its constituency and say, yes, we were offered the best of both worlds. They said we could have our cake and eat it too. They said that we could be in the United Kingdom and in the European Union. And that could be a gamble too great for them to take.
7: It could be, but what's crucial for the DUP in the grand scheme of things is the union and it's being a part of the union and what this agreement uh, sets out if there is a backstop is Mm. that yes, there will be this single customs arrangement where all of the UK will be in uh, the the arrangement with the EU, but Northern Ireland will be much more closely tied than the rest of the UK is. Mm. They'll have all these extra tag-ons and little deals to the point of where goods that are coming from the UK into Northern Ireland will actually have to be checked. So while they'll be able to trade freely into the EU and into the UK, which in theory is quite an ideal scenario for business, certainly, Mm. um, it does separate them to the point uh, of, you know, where you can start down the line. This is the big fear of the DUP, of course, that it would then lead to more influence from Dublin and ultimately a united Ireland. And that is their fundamental fear. I mean, Sammy Wilson's comments yesterday, as incendiary as they were, Said a good example of where they stand he, he was talking about the violence in northern ireland over 40 years and he said if, uh, if they think that the eu is going to achieve what the ira didn't through many bombing campaigns they've got another thing coming so i think that was quite instructive in where the hardline dup vote is
3: and they may be too hurt at the idea of how obviously they were sold out uh, they were told that there would be no difference and there is this distinct difference it would seem now
7: there is a distinct difference. It, it's not there in name. There's, you know, political couching, there's nuance mm. to it. But it, in essence, it, Northern Ireland is definitely more tied to the European Union than the rest of the UK is. And in terms of what May actually was seeking and what the Brexit years are seeking, there's been a huge amount of capitulation from the British side on those various deals on what they can do. I mean, they're going to be if they end up in the backstop, they will be really, really severely restricted in free trade deals that they can do, which was another uh, crucial part of it. They will still be paying into the European budget. There's £39 billion in a divorce deal. So there has been a lot of backtracking here, possibly too much for enough of the Commons to stomach it.
3: Very good day for Finnegale. Very good day for the minority-led government. Uh, the Fine Gael-Ordash coming up. What next?
7: Well, they are incredibly happy in government buildings. I ran into some officials who've been involved in this and who've been heavily in talks and stressed out for the last number of months trying to get this across and they could barely keep the smiles from their faces yesterday evening when they saw this. It has all of the things that the Irish government were looking for and their politicians are trying to play down the happiness with that deal. They don't want to become the headline over in the UK to put targets on their back for Brexiteers and for the DUP to shout out at it, but they are privately very, very happy with this deal. And, Leo, you know, obviously they prefer there would be no Brexit at all, but if there's going to be any scenario, this would be probably one of the most positive ones for Ireland. I have no doubt it will be trumpeted now at the Fine Ardesh the weekend as things start to frame up. But they are being much more careful with their language than they were when we a deal and the initial idea of the backstop commitment emerged earlier on in the year when they went all gung-ho on it and mm. produced a fierce backlash in the British media. So... What's next is a big question. A lot Good time
3: for an election talking. for Finnegale, isn't it?
7: I was just going to say, a lot of people talking yesterday about election and the election maps. It does look unlikely, this side of Christmas, if you... For example, if Leo Varadkar, the, the EU summit on the 25th of November mm. is a Sunday, if you come into the doll on the Monday morning and dissolve it, there's 18 days have to pass then before you can actually have the vote under the... Mm. the Rules of it, so we would literally be going to the polls the week before Christmas. Yep. For most politicians, completely unpalatable. They don't want winter election. People don't want to be bothered. But there's a lot of uh, fear in both Fianna Fail and Labour. Interestingly, that Leo Varadkar is not your normal politician. He is the type of fella who may well decide you know what I'm going to cut and run here I don't care about a winter election we'll Mm. get through it and there's a certain sense from a Fine point of view because then they don't get hit by the absolute worst of the trolley crisis and aren't battered in the media all over the Christmas heading into a potential say January or February election Would you bet would would you bet
3: against an election on the 14th of December?
7: uh, At the moment I would I I don't think it's going to happen the uh, I suppose the common opinion at the moment is it will more likely be in February I think There there is certainly enough room now for them to think about it, but... I don't think it's going to happen uh, for a number of reasons. When you look at how opportunistic it would look from the over Agra's point of view to actually go and do it, when you look at the fact that, I mean, you know, the politicians would be canvassing people as they're doing their Christmas shopping up and down the country. They would have to deal with a certain amount of the Mm. crisis that's going to go in the hospitals. There are going to probably be a number of homeless deaths, unfortunately, over the winter, which the government inevitably gets blamed for it. That could happen through a campaign. It would be a hugely risky move, but we've seen that from Leo or too. So while I wouldn't bet that there will be one, um, you know, you'd never really know what's going to happen in the, the realm of new politics.
3: Thanks, Sean. And we'll be hearing from Minister Helen McEntee later in the programme about where all of this goes next. Our political correspondent there, though, Sean Defoe.
2: Michael,
3: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul is uh, appealing to you to save someone from a life of poverty, launching its annual appeal uh, this week. Uh, the charity said that it visited some 50,000 families over the winter months of last year. Kieran Stafford, National President of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, is on the line. Good morning, Kieran. And uh, I gather that you'll visit as many this year if you don't exceed that number because you're already taking around a thousand calls a day
8: Uh, good morning Michael yes indeed unfortunately um, we've uh, seen no um, let up in the uh, request for help so far uh, we're expecting to do uh, we're expecting to receive at least uh, uh, the same amount of calls this year as we did last year which is um strange to say the least you know given the fact that we're being told constantly that the economy is on the up that things are improving for people which indeed they are for some people but unfortunately not for everyone
3: but not being spread around uh, you were making the point uh, that we're one of the top five richest countries in the world
8: yeah indeed but uh, still we have uh, an enormous homeless crisis
3: um the line appears to have dropped out on us there. Apologies uh, for that. We'll try and get Kieran Stafford back on uh, the line. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem is there, but uh, obviously there is some sort of a problem. Uh, You're being asked uh, obviously uh, to help St. Vincent de Paul if you can, and there's many ways that you can do that, and we'll go through some of those ways in a few moments' time. But the society is also encouraging you if you are in need of help uh, to make contact with them, uh, because uh, that's uh, what they're there for. Uh, we have the uh, line back with Kieran. Kieran, uh, uh, apologies there, I'm not sure what happened, the no uh, line just dropped out on us, uh, but uh, you were saying that whilst we're one of the top five richest countries in the world, this is eluding an awful lot of people.
8: Uh, yeah, and I was just uh, making the point there that we have um, currently a homeless crisis, which means that, that we have 10,000 families, uh, which includes 4,000 children who are homeless living in emergency accommodation. Uh, they don't have uh, a proper home and they don't have any prospect of, of, of getting a proper home uh, in the in the uh, near future, unfortunately.
3: OK, well, we're just uh, a little over a month out from Christmas. Uh, and at uh, this time of uh, the year, I'm sure a lot of uh, the parents of uh, those children uh, who, who don't have a, a place they can call home uh, will be finding it difficult. Uh, but it's not just people in emergency accommodation. And uh, I imagine, imagine there'll be a surge at this time of the year.
8: Absolutely. Uh, the experiences that we're finding with people is that um, the high cost of rents are putting people under enormous strain and, and stress. Uh, we're talking about low-income families. Um, there are now currently uh, 102,000 working poor uh, in the country. Um, so people who are working but just can't afford to provide the absolute minimal essentials that we all regard as, as normal you know, for, for, for modern day living. Um, you know, pe- people are cutting back on food. They're cutting back on other things just so that they can make uh, Christmas, you know, that much special special for their kids. N- nobody wants mm-hmm. to see uh, Christmas come and go without it being a special time for their kids.
3: Uh, and you're doc- Uh, talking uh, about luxuries Uh, you're not necessarily talking about Santa making a a visit to these homes uh, over the Christmas period uh, although I'm sure uh, you can help uh, with that but you're talking also about some very basic fundamentals whether that's light or heat, uh, utility bills uh, that can't be met and uh, services being cut off, uh, food as you say and shelter of course uh, such a big problem for so many people
8: yeah, obviously people are prioritising to make sure that the rent is paid. Um, utility bills have, have recently been increased. Um, you know, we, we we are experiencing with people that they're just struggling to pay the bills um, and uh, they're just about getting by and in some cases they're not. So if you throw an occasion like Christmas in, uh, which, is, um, uh, which makes the situation even more stressful on people, uh, people are just going under.
3: And there's a, a stigma to... Coming to uh, an organisation like yourselves, looking uh, for charity, reaching out for charity uh, like that, uh, and people uh, will try other methods, uh, and uh, this brings in uh, the interest rates that moneylenders are charging, uh, that there may be some manners put on some of these lenders.
8: Well, we, we, we are constantly uh, seeing the scourge of moneylenders. Um, quite a, a number of people that we visit um, would be accessing uh, high-interest loans from, from moneylenders. Uh, we're talking about interest rates in excess of 190%. Uh, um, you know, we constantly try to encourage people to go back to their credit unions, uh, to develop a, um, a relationship with their credit unions where they'll get a reasonable um, uh, credit rate. Um, and access to emergency um, uh, money. You know, in the event that, for instance, a fridge might break down or a washing machine might break down, or you may have a a family emergency, um, we constantly try to encourage people to to stay away from money lenders. Uh, Unfortunately, they're very convenient, very handy, and they knock on doors and they offer uh, enticements to people in in that they offer loans at the door. And um, uh, unfortunately, what people end up paying back is, is unaffordable.
3: Yeah, and uh, it happened so quickly uh, because then there's interest on top of interest, I I take it as well.
8: I'm not sure Mm. if if they're quite allowed to do that, but um, uh, we we would have seen situations, um, you know, down through the years where people would have have had a number of different loans from a number of different money lenders, you know, which completely takes uh, all of their income. Uh, and we would see people that just wouldn't even be able to put food on the table because of the amount of money that they would be paying back to money
3: lenders. Uh, and these aren't the illegal money lenders, are they? I mean, these are, are people who are legitimately lending money uh, at these exorbitant rates. 190% is an incredible rate of interest. Yeah.
8: Uh, absolutely. And these are regulated by the central bank. And what's more, all the more surprising as well is, is that we have catalogue companies that are actually um, designated as money lenders because of the interest rates that they charge for people to get goods on credit. You know, so, I mean, we keep, we keep constantly saying to people, um, you know, it seems easy to get the particular thing that you're looking for, but what you'll actually pay back and what you will end up uh, not being able to um, manage Uh, because of the payments that they're paying back, um, you you know, are are, are going to put you into
3: into a lot of difficulty. Uh, And that's it. Even if you do uh, manage to pay it back yourself, uh, obviously something else has had to give in order to be able to do that. Uh, You obviously have a a lot of money uh, from uh, the contributions that you receive. Uh, uh, On average, uh, what would you expect to spend in a typical year helping people like this?
8: Uh, usually, just uh, off the top of my head, I don't have the figures mm-hmm. in, in front of me. But um, off the top of my head, we we usually give out in the in the vicinity of about forty million to to direct uh, aid for people per year.
3: It's an awful lot of money, isn't
8: it? Huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, that goes into uh, providing fo- uh, fuel, food, uh, shelter, and um, we we help to support people with rents. You know, during. Uh, of times uh, we support people with education that 's really, really important to us because we see that as a, as a really important way to break the poverty cycle. Uh, you know we would help people with transport uh, transport to hospitals, hospital appointments, doctor appointments um, there 's so many mm-hmm. different things that that, that we do um, I, I mean we, we have uh, a saying in, in in the simplest support no act of charity is foreign to us, so uh, you know we 're open to people coming to us w- with any kind of a difficulty and I would encourage anybody to um, uh, who has any kind of a difficulty, please don't go to moneylenders. Please come and talk to us and we'll see uh, you know, if, if, if we can support you over this, this uh,
3: difficult time. Yeah, and obviously you rely on the generosity of uh, people in order to have that money available to you to help others.
8: Uh, absolutely. The yeah. Irish public um, ha- have been extraordinarily generous down through the years. Um, next year we will be 175 years in existence in Ireland and uh, we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the mm. generosity of the Irish people who support our work. And by donating to us, it means that we can continue to support families in communities. And um, everything that's donated locally stays locally and is spent locally. Uh, so like you're, you're supporting people in your own community uh, who could be a relation, it could be a friend, it could be somebody that you don't even know is in difficulty. Um, you know, so so um, uh, thanks to, to, to the generosity of the Irish public, of whom we are eternally grateful, uh, we can continue our work.
3: It's an unfortunate necessity, isn't it? Uh, And uh, an unfortunate way to have to raise money for those who are in need.
8: It it is really, you know. um, We would hope, you know, at at this stage, you know, that we would have better um, indications of at um, uh, levels than we currently have. I think it needs a whole of government action in order to tackle uh, you know, the poverty trap that so many people find themselves in. Mm. I mean, we, we're looking at 780,000 people who are currently living below the poverty uh, level. So, y- y- you know, um, uh, that's people who can't access the same equal opportunities and can't fulfil their potentials, you know, same as, as other people who, who have the, the resources to do that.
3: Yeah, and uh, I mean, whilst people are, are very generous uh, and uh, the, the Vincent de Paul is and always has been very well supported, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that those who can afford to give do give and quite often it's uh, the other way around.
8: Yeah, I mean, we, um, uh, we, you know, it's the ordinary person on the street, um, uh, by by and large, that is the the biggest supporter of us. You know, um, we have our monthly collections, we have our big collection at this time of the year, uh, and it's the ordinary decent uh, citizen of of the country uh, are the ones that support us year in, year out.
3: All right, and they can do that and I'm sure people will uh, continue to do that in huge numbers and they can also uh, donate uh, through the Giving Tree Appeal and the Food uh, Appeal as well. Uh, We'll leave it there for the moment, Kieran, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Kieran Stafford is uh, the National President of uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul.
2: Michael Reed on LMFM
3: You'll remember a time when we were all obsessed by water charges or more to the point you might remember the time when we were all obsessed with how we wouldn't be paying for water at least uh, that debate is over except for the fact that water charges are on the way it seems Let's uh, talk with Independence for Change TD for Dublin South Central Joan Collins Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us Irish Water expecting uh, to charge 80000 and people in a couple of years' time, it would seem.
6: Well, the legislation that was brought in um, with the competent supply of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael allowed um, excessive usage to be put into the legislation um, and allowed them, I think, in July of this year, of next year, mm-hmm. to start charging people who excessively use over 213,000 an average household litres of water per year
3: right but uh, I think Irish water has said that they expect to introduce uh, these charges for excessive usage from 2020
6: well according to the legislation and um, they would be monitoring those households who have meters and I have to remember that 40 percent of households do not have meters because people resisted going into their um, homes and um, and they were supposed to be monitoring over this this year and then in July of next year and um, people would it's People are excessively, if they monitor the fact that people, households are using excessive water, they write them, mm. ask them to fix it. And then if they don't do it in six months, then they charge.
3: So is that why they expect the first of the charges uh, to be in 2020 rather than the summer of next year? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, Because that's what they've said in a submission to the Commission for Regulation on this. 80,000 households in this country using excessive amounts of water. Or to put that another way, there's leaks in the pipes, is it?
6: Well, that's where the real issue should be um, discussed. Um, I think the report also said that only something like 3% of the leaks is in household uh, water meters. So, 97% of the leaks are in the in, in the actual pipes, um, which need to be fixed. And it's one of the key demands we made all through the campaign, and um, that this 41 to 50% of water, treated, expensive water, mm. is is lost through our pipes, and uh, they have to be fixed. Mm.
3: Uh, and they expect to raise seven million euro in the first year of charging for this excessive usage, or for <laughs> the water that's leaking out of the pipes, as you might put it. Mm
6: it's very um, I don't think anybody really knows Michael because um, number one 213,000 litres per year is quite a lot of, um, of water to be using in a household so if there is leaks and it's in the pipes well then they have to be fixed mm. um, and if somebody who's disabled and a, and a household are using a lot of money they can get um, and, uh, they can get a waiver or such. Um, and I think there'd be very very few households um, that will actually be using excessive water, except if you have like a swimming pool and you're using a lot of water in that, um, which doesn't really affect too many people in our communities because um, we don't have swimming pools. Mm. Um, so, I, 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 it's hard to know exactly what they're going to get from it, um, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's going to cost nearly five times the amount of 7 million. A yeah. figure came up 30 million at one stage they could expect from it and to actually implement it through, you know, manage the water meters, putting new ones in, mm cost of, of the clerical workers and all that sort of thing. It'll cost me five times the amount to chase down that money.
3: Yeah, I've seen a, a figure of 39 million over five years. Uh, but if I fill up both of my swimming pools, uh, how will they know?
6: Well, if you have a water meter, it'll show on, on that.
3: Yeah, but if I don't...
6: If you don't, it won't show. That's the i saying, 40% of households do not have water meters because they resisted them right. going in, so... Mm there were all the points we made during the expert at the the committee at that time, but for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil to get her over the line, they made this agreement with Fianna Gael to bring in this excessive usage.
3: Right, so if I have a water meter, they'll charge me. Uh, 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 How much will I have to pay? Um, There's no fixed
6: figures. I did see a a proposed figure of around €3, just over €3 per thousand litres, um, a figure like that, but Again, we have to get that confirmed.
3: Right. Uh, so I'll be paying €3 Euro per 1,000 litres, uh, and that will soon add up uh, because I think we've all learned to some degree uh, that we use a, a lot of water. Uh, and I could end up having a fairly hefty bill unless I get the pipes fixed, or I may not have a metre and I could continue to fill up my two swimming pools and nobody would know and I wouldn't get charged.
6: On um, the first point, um, we actually don't use a lot of water. Um, the report actually said that Ireland is one of the best countries in the world for not being wasteful of water in Europe and in the world.
3: Mm, I know, but when you talk about a, a thousand litres of water, it sounds an awful lot until you realise uh, that uh, you use a, an awful lot of water every time you flush the toilet or fill the bath or boil potatoes.
6: Yeah, yeah, Um but a lot of people reuse that water for mm. washing. You know, people are very um, concerned. And your point about it is there's also a report recently that where households have been shown that the, the, um, they're losing a lot of water um, in the home, possibly, they are very, very quick and resourceful in actually fixing those leaks mm. because they are um, much better than even the um, private industry in doing that. I take um, it some
3: of the leaks, though, are, are, are difficult to get at and expensive to fix.
6: Well with the forest fix um with Irish water, as far as i I understand, um can be um sought to to fix the first the leak. Mm. Um yeah, but it it could cost money uh, depending on where that leak is, if it's right underneath the the ground or your floor and you have you know, concrete flooring that could cause a problem. Um but the the point about it is, is that I believe that The majority of water is lost through leakage in the pipes and that the report actually did say only approximately Mm -hmm. 3% of water is lost in the homes. So I I think they'd be very few and far between.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, it must be because uh, the drought this year seemed to go on until the middle of october wasn't That's it right. uh, when the sky was falling in almost every day with buckets of water falling out of it uh, but uh, when they say that excessive usage is 1.7 times the average mm-hmm. uh, amount of water used uh, will that change
6: well they did put in the legislation that it can be reviewed in 5 years after the legislation came in um and we, are, I'm absolutely opposed to this because I do not think there is that intent um, of willful waste of water in this country. Mm. And we didn't need the legislation, this legislation, because it was already covered under the 2007 Act where local authorities could actually, you know, find these leaks and approach a person and tell them to fix them. If they didn't, they could have brought them to court. And that was already there. Um, but, um, yeah, I, it's... They they have that provision in the legislation to mm. allow that to happen. And I think if they do try and bring down that 1.7, there will be a big reaction to it.
3: Mm. So in five years' time, uh, they could start charging 20 or €50 euro a year, uh, kind of regardless of how much you use.
6: Well, no, the, 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 they can't charge for water, only if you successfully using it. And they have to have that figure fixed at 1.7. Um, of the average household, mm. say four households under But they
3: could bring that down, could they not?
6: They could bring that yeah, down. Mm. That's, that's what they've yeah, provided mm. in the legislation, yeah.
3: So that's um, what I mean. In Five or years or so, like when we've all kind of forgotten about how everybody felt about all of this, uh, they could bring it right down and charge everybody a few quid and then the year after a few quid more and so on.
6: Well, if they try and do that, Michael, we'll be letting people know loud and clear that that's mm. happening. Um, and it won't go under the radar in any shape or form. And have, we'll have we'll organise and resist it because we fought hard and strong to keep our water um, uh, public. And we also are still pushing for the referendum on the public ownership of our water. That's absolutely crucial. Um, and we're still pushing that through the committee. It's third stage in the committee. Um, admittedly, it's been dragged very slowly.
3: Hmm. Um, and I they, thought it was rejected, was not it
6: No, no, no. Okay. It's still there. Hmm. No, it's still there. Um, hmm. We're still negotiating with the committee and the, and the minister on it. Hmm. Um, so we, we'd be hoping, we'd be really very much hopeful that we could be looking at a referendum in the May local elections next year. Um, and we, we'd be pushing for that now that, that to happen.
3: Okay, but the government says uh, that uh, water is in public ownership and will continue to be that way, and there's no need for a referendum, I think at least if I remember correctly, that's been uh, the argument. Uh, and if they don't charge for this uh, excessive usage, uh, we face these huge European fines.
6: Well, on the second issue there, the European fines, there was a huge question mark over that, um, and you've got different... Um, from different people, you would have got different mm. points on it, um, and so that was never really clarified 100%. Um, but as I said, the, the referendum is going to be crucial to this because we, while well, the government have said that you know it's in public ownership and that it's not, um, unless it's, uh, it's that the ownership and management of the of a new water entity or whatever it's called is actually in public ownership. Um, that's going to be the crucial part of it. Um, and as I said, we absolutely, if the government ever attempts, no matter what government it is, to bring lower that 1.7%, um, we would certainly be letting people know and not let it go into the radar. And if there was a progressive government um, brought in, that would be abolished.
3: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thanks, as always, for joining us. Uh, that's no Independence problem. for Change. TD for Dublin South Central, Joan Collins.
2: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM.
3: Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
9: Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Seamus from Dundalk contacted us this morning. This seems almost too good to be true, Michael. It's a good agreement for the Irish government and for Ireland But realistically, I cannot see Theresa May being able to get it across the line, Mm. says Seamus. David says there's already been resignations over this. Cannot see how Theresa May Mm. has the numbers to get this deal sealed. Think that the celebrations are short-lived or will be short-lived.
3: Well, uh, there's a lot of uh, concern this morning, a lot of uh, jubilation yesterday, I think, uh, and Uh, Delight at uh, the idea that the Cabinet had accepted this to what degree Mm -hmm. uh, and how many naysayers there were to resignations this morning. Uh, More perhaps to follow and undoubtedly uh, mammoth challenge uh, for the Prime Minister to get uh, the approval of the Commons.
9: Another listener says the Irish government and negotiation team have done well in this and need to be congratulated for their efforts. If the UK leave, at least the border is going to be protected by this agreement. Mm. Uh, Mairead from Doherty phoned in, if the British government collapses over this agreement uh, because it doesn't go far enough for the Remain side, then there really should be another referendum in the UK. There may be. There could be. God knows. It depends how it all pans out, doesn't it? Uh, Michael says, What bugs me about the DUP is that some of the representatives were rejecting the agreement before they had even seen it. Don't think they want to compromise at all. It's always they want their own way. Some things never change. Well, they haven't got their own way this time anyway.
3: Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure that that is particularly fair. It's true, but uh, I mean, I think uh, that it was uh, an informed uh, kind of uh, statement that we were hearing from those opposed to it in that whilst they hadn't seen the agreement and they were basing what they were saying on media reports, uh, mm. it transpires uh, that uh, it was pretty much in line with what has been announced.
9: A job well done by Simon Coveney and Helen McEntee, says Declan. Mm. And you have to admit that the powers that be in the EU have really stood by Ireland to make sure that there is going to be no hard border.
3: Okay, yeah. Well, I think uh, the government uh, will be listening to comments like that uh, when there's praise uh, for individual politicians and <laughs> in the government in general uh, and uh, maybe looking at how it's all received uh, this weekend at the Ordesh and yes. uh, perhaps beyond that uh, to their own future.
9: Yeah, Well, talk of a general election didn't go down too well with Jim from Navin. Was listening to your political correspondent, I don't think anyone would thank the Taoiseach if he had an election just before Christmas, warned Jim. However, he says, I do think that he should go to the country in the new year and get this election out of the way because mm. it keeps coming up again and again.
0: And we need to have stability moving forward.
3: Yeah, well, we'll see. Watch so that we, space. We could, we
9: could have a general election, local elections and the European elections to look forward to next year, Michael. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> we we'll certainly have some, have some of them, yeah. Mm.
9: Pat from Navin is not one bit happy over all the developments in the last 24 hours and the agreement. And the reason is because he wants England to stay in the EU. Mm. He, do- he doesn't like the thoughts of the UK going and mm. leaving the EU and he feels that Sinn Féin have let the country down, that they want their bread buttered on both sides of their bread. He says that they complain uh, about not enough being done and yet they won't take up their seats in Westminster. And he says, I will be interested to hear from Minister McEntee later on in the show, but my but my feeling is that this is all going to fall apart. Okay. So he's not too optimistic. Mm. Moving then to your interview with uh, St Vincent de Paul. Uh, Denise phoned in and says if you were to believe the politicians in this country it's all sweetness and light. Everyone is making a fortune and people are well off. But then you have St Vincent de Paul and they talk about so many people looking for help there's clearly still something wrong many people are still suffering the cost of rent Denise thinks is a huge factor she says you have many working people who really are struggling to from week to week because of the amount that they have to pay out in rent every week. Yeah. And she says, I know you're covering it on your show a lot, but it's still not really being addressed. Yeah, well,
3: that's the reality of life for people, it would seem. Uh, and uh, as uh, Kieran Stafford of Vincent de Paul was saying to us earlier on, uh, we're one of the five richest countries in the world.
9: Shane wasn't touched. We were talking about money lenders and, and the importance of going to maybe your banks or your credit union. And he was saying that he finds the credit unions have become very bank-like in the last few years and doesn't find that the local feeling, he puts in inverted commas, the local feeling doesn't seem to be the way it once was before. He said the credit union said no to him but he was able to go to the bank and get a loan. Mm. Uh, Eileen says it's only when you fall on hard times that you really appreciate the work of organisations like St. Vincent de Paul.
3: Yeah,
9: so that is true.
3: Well, I'm sure it is, yeah, and uh, thank God for them, I'm sure, as well.
9: Water charges, Michael. <laughs> oh, OK. Mm. I'd forgotten <laughs> <Fran>. about them. <laughs> I thought that was done and dusted. Mm. Uh, so did our listeners, it appears. But Fran says, a uh, text in to say, if this government think they're going to put water charges under the door to the people, they have another thing coming. The people will not pay water charges Especially, he says, in many areas, the water is not even of good enough quality to use the water that's coming out of your tap. And he feels, and I know Fran has been saying this for a while, that Irish water should be abolished and that the the running of our water services should go back to Mm. the county councils. Okay. Another listener, have we time for a couple more? Noel, Noel Mm -hmm. says, why are we talking about water charges, Michael? I thought they were gone. Does, well, they're coming back. Does the Right to Water campaign need to start up again? He wonders. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, that's up to the Right to Water <laughs> campaign. Uh, Irish Water expecting to raise in around seven million uh, from twenty twenty nine million uh, each year after that, and uh, I think thirty nine million over the course of five years for people who are using excessive amounts of water.
9: Uh, Damien phoned in, and he was listening to your interview, and he says, "If you have a leak, uh, Michael." Uh, and you're not even aware of it. Will you be penalized? Should that be your responsibility? How can you tell if mm. you have a leak unless it's obvious? Uh, but he says from what he's hearing many from Irish Water and from those in the know that sometimes leaks can happen and it could be, you know, outside kind of on the way into your property, you know, out. Mm. I, that you don't actually see a physical leak, if you like. Yeah. And uh, he he was just questioning that and does that fall on you when you may not even be aware of the problem?
3: Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there's the first fix uh, uh, scenario. Will that still that apply now? Of, uh, I wonder. It seems to be, yeah, uh, Joan Collins. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember. It's all so long ago. It is. <laughs> you know, I think that, I wonder if this is part of uh, the approach, uh, because we've all forgotten about all of this at this stage. Uh, but uh, John Collins was saying this morning that the first leak fix uh, will uh, be something that you can charge to Irish Water they'll come to you and say you're using an awful lot of water you go and say get a plumber in or whatever they'll tell you it's a leak and then you can tell Irish Water you need it fixed
9: Um, Another listener says um, the government won't take no for an answer they are trying to bring water charges in through the back door and it will be just like the bins the cost will just keep rising every year I agree Michael with your suggestion that it might just start with a certain amount and then I think you mentioned 50 euro or something mm, at one mm, stage mm, mm, and then we'll find that it's going up and up and up so we have to keep up the resistance mm, to this okay well
3: i wouldn't be suggesting anything no no it. I was you weren't if but, that might be the case yeah. yes mm.
9: and another listener mm. says what part of no does this government uh, not hear that we all uh, rejected the water charges and that why should we have to pay now, that it is a way of bringing them in, as another listener said, through the back door. So people aren't happy. There's nobody ringing up saying they really, really want to pay, put it that way so far, Michael. But they may may after the break.
3: OK, they they, they may very well do that. All right, and we'll find out. uh, I'm sure in due course. Thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Uh, If you'd like to ring and uh, make such a a comment or uh, something else uh, that you'd like uh, to share with us, uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you, Marie, and Maggie taking calls today on 185715958 Michael, Michael
2: Reed
3: on LMFM Now a third resignation uh, this morning in uh, London uh, the uh, minister for work and pensions Esther McAvoy has Uh, Just resigned in uh, the last uh, few minutes. Uh, Let's talk uh, about uh, where this uh, draft withdrawal agreement is going with uh, the Minister for European Affairs and Local TD, Helen McEntee. Good morning, Minister, and thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, BBC reporting 10 of the British Cabinet unhappy with uh, these proposals, although it did uh, get agreement. But as we're seeing, it's beginning to fall apart.
10: Well I, I think that we've known from the outset that this wasn't going to be easy um, and indeed the last two years the negotiations certainly haven't been easy. Um, I'm you know, I'm, I'm maybe not going to comment on what's happening in the UK. I think the Prime Minister getting to this stage um, has A, fulfilled her commitment to us um, last December as we've spoken about many times there were a number of commitments given in terms of financial settlement, in terms of citizens' rights but most importantly on the Irish issue um, and our Priorities that we avoid a hard border, that we protect our peace process, that we protect the common travel area, citizens' rights, and, and then following on from that, that there is a transition period. So, um, you know, things have moved quickly in the last few days. I was in Brussels on Monday uh, where myself and the honest I mess with Michel Barnier and I think it was very clear that we were moving in the right direction in terms of that landing zone that I spoke to you about last week and, and getting a final agreement. And then obviously that was uh, announced later on this week and the Prime Minister held uh, I think it was over five hours discussions with her Cabinet Ministers and I think you know it, it's it's very clear that there are obviously different views on this. There have been different views within her own party but within Westminster among the Labour Party and other uh, independent groups as to what direction we should go and to what Brexit means and I think for everybody it means something different for us. It's not our policy. It's not something that's We want to happen. I certainly regret that it's happening, but we are where we are. And from an Irish point of view, everything that we set out to achieve in terms of the commitments last year and protecting our own citizens, our own business and the peace process, we achieved last night, but we are by no means any way across the line. It's now uh, the middle of November. Brexit is not due to happen until the 29th of March. And so obviously there's a whole new process Mm. about to take place now, as you've mentioned. There are challenges in Westminster the EU have to agree this, the Parliament has to agree this, we'll have our own debate in the the Dáil next week, and all of this is really moving on to the next stage.
3: Mm. Uh, I mean, if there's significant amounts of Tories opposed to this, if the Labour Party is opposed to this, if the DUP are opposed to this, is there any point in going ahead with uh, the Council Summit on uh, the 25th?
10: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think up until Theresa May left Downing Street yesterday there was speculation that there has that there was no uh, agreement among the Cabinet. So, I mean, we we can speculate and and I think throughout the past two years um, we have...
3: You know, we, we mm, Three ministers, did, ministers have I resigned would, so know. far this morning uh, and the day is young. McVeigh's uh, resignation letter talks about the £39 billion that the UK is going to hand over to the EU without anything in return. It'll trap the United Kingdom in a customs union uh, despite promises otherwise. She goes on to say it'll bind the hands of not only this but future governments and uh, that uh, they won't be able to take back control. They're handing control over to the EU. EU and it threatens the integrity of the United Kingdom, which she said, as a unionist, uh, is it's a risk that she cannot be a party to.
10: I mean, that's one view and that's one opinion. There are other views and there are other opinions that this is actually a good deal. I think what we've seen, and certainly from my own communication. Um, with people in the UK, is that a second referendum is not something that people want. And indeed, we possibly most likely would not get a different outcome. And so, what we're looking at here now is either having a deal or, or no deal. And the deal that the Prime Minister has uh, negotiated and has agreed through her cabinet, and I, I agree and, and understand mm. the that there have been resignations, but we have to continue in the process that's now been set out. So, I will travel to Brussels on Monday as part of. The, the committee that I attend and prepare for the council meeting, that will happen um, Sunday week, the 25th. Um, and then it will go back to the each respective member states, including Westminster. And even if we get through the first vote, that's obviously just the initial stages. They will then have to go through committee and everything else. So, you know, the Prime Minister up until now has managed to, I think, address a lot of the concerns, um, and in particular that in terms of East-West. It's very clear in the very first paragraph of the withdrawal agreement outlines that the the integrity of the the United Kingdom will not be impacted and that the principle of consent, which is connected to the Good Friday Agreement, um, which means that unless there is a a vote and a majority vote in Northern Ireland, then it will remain as part of um, the United Kingdom. So that is very clear and very strong in that. And I think the backstop of which we've, you know, people are probably sick of hearing about it, but um, something that is extremely important to us the reason that we've moved in the direction of a shared single customs territory is to ensure that between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, there's no tariffs, mm. there's no quotas, there's no checks in terms of rule of origin, that they still have unfettered access to the UK market, that they have access to the rest of the EU in terms of goods, and that there is minimal regulatory alignment. So this is.
3: Mm. She's really goes. sold the DUP out, hasn't she? Is she a credible? Individual, Do you believe uh, that the British government can be trusted given how poorly they've treated the DUP?
10: I absolutely believe that Theresa May can be trusted. Um, And I think, if anything, what she's shown, her commitment last year, um, and yes, it's been a difficult year and we've gone and had ups and downs, but the commitment last year to avoid a hard border but also to ensure that the changes in terms of east-west, that the integrity of uh, Northern Ireland is not in any way um, damage that it remains part of the United Kingdom, she has fulfilled those commitments, and we know there are minimal checks east west already at the moment It's to maintain those minimal, minimal checks um, yeah. but also to 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 come back to the commitments that she made to us uh,
3: but when you talk about those our policy
10: and, and we do not want it to impact us
3: but when you talk about a- those minimal checks, Minister, <laughs> uh, that effectively keeps Northern Ireland in the customs union. And Theresa May said that when the EU was proposing effectively keeping Northern Ireland in the customs union, that was unacceptable to her and that she would never agree to it and no Prime Minister would ever agree to it because, she said, it would mean breaking up our country.
10: And this is why we have gone the direction that we've gone and this is why I think from an EU point of view, um, something that was initially not acceptable to the twenty. Uh, six other member states, and that there would be a shared customs territory. So while it's not a full customs union, it's a shared territory, which is Mm -hmm. obviously, as I said, ensuring that there is no tariffs, there's no quotas in terms of uh, countries of origin, there's no checks from Northern Ireland. It's obviously something that we um, think is very positive because it's not just the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, it's with the rest of the EU. Mm -hmm. So for our business in terms of East and West, this is good, What we talk about in terms of excuse me Northern Ireland remaining aligned to particular rules necessary. This is particularly really in the area of goods and veterinary controls and SDF mm. checks and they already exist um at a very minimal level at the moment and what we're doing is keeping them at that minimal level. So I, I understand uh,
11: uh, that the DUP
10: have concern and I understand that unionists and the Latishaq Address this very clearly yesterday might be feeling vulnerable at the moment but every step that has been taken and in particular the new direction of which this backstop is going has been Mm. to try and address those concerns and to ensure that that the integrity um, of Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom does not change and and that's very clearly outlined in in the document which was agreed yesterday.
3: But the insurance policy, (laughs) the backstop uh, as you call it, the insurance policy says that worst case scenario Uh, northern ireland could be in exactly that situation where it remains in the customs union and great britain is out
10: well what would have to happen moving forward and and this would be uh, it would have to be agreed from both sides so there was a suggestion earlier that they shared customs territory and that the uk could pull out themselves um however that's not the case and the review clause which we spoke about last week and which is relatively new to the discussion Um, is something that would have to be where a committee would be formed. Um, There would be members from the UK and the EU as part of that committee. Um, The review would allow both sides to look at, A, whether or not the backstop had come into place, whether it was no longer needed um, or whether there was elements of it because of maybe a future relationship that Mm. had been negotiated that weren't needed. But it, it has to be. It can't be unilaterally decided. The UK cannot decide to pull one part out and not the other.
3: But if it is and agreed, that would leave Northern Ireland in the customs union and Great Britain out.
10: Well, what we have at the moment is a shared customs territory. Yes. So you know we're not going to look
3: for that if the UK. No, but to look but for but, a change. But that, that is possible, that and and the fact that it is possible is a betrayal in the eyes of the DUP.
10: I think what's very clear: is if both sides have to agree. Um, If the UK and the EU have to agree that what is going to happen next uh, will uphold the commitment. So not just the commitments for us to avoid a hard border um, and to protect the peace process, but also commitments east-west. So that commitment is there by the Prime Minister. And I think our focus now and and what Mm. our focus has to be, and particularly with the Prime Minister, and I'm sure this is uh, where our attention lies, is now actually looking at the future relationship. Because, you know, I think this is getting Mm. lost maybe in the discussion a lot. This is the, if you want to put it this way, this is the worst case scenario. This is the Fine. last scenario that we want to
3: happen. But we might and not get, we might not get past this point because of this element. Uh, and I'm sure you can understand why the DUP see it as a betrayal.
10: Well, I, again, I think that a lot of what has been done in the past few months, in particular, has been to try and address the concerns that they have raised, as well as obviously the concerns that we have. But, I mean, there is... Are they stamping
3: their feet, or or, or or how do you see it? I, I mean, uh, they believe they have a, a legitimate argument. They believe that they're being betrayed. Uh, do you not understand their position at all, Minister?
10: I absolutely do, and I, I, I understand so that, that they have concerns, but, I mean...
3: But I you, do, you, do you understand that they the feel betrayed?
10: No, because, I well, I, to me, I don't see this as being betrayal. I think that the Prime Minister and that the EU teams have tried to engage... On all of our concerns. So not just on the Irish, Northern Irish Pacific, but also the East West. And this is the point that we have come to. But also, while we have this agreement, now we know that the, the political declaration. Um, you've, you've mentioned three blocks
3: there, and that's, that's the problem. The DUP think there's two blocks. There's the United Kingdom uh, and there's the Republic of Ireland in terms of the border question.
10: I don't understand in terms of the three blocks. I mean, Well, I mean,
3: you, you're, I think you're suggesting that there's the Republic, there's Northern Ireland, uh, and there's Great Britain, uh, which are the three blocks. Uh, the DUP say, no, that's wrong. There's two blocks. There's the Republic and there's the United Kingdom.
10: Well, I, I'm not suggesting there's three blocks. What I'm saying, and I think what we all know, is that Northern Ireland is quite unique. So, again, in terms of citizens' rights, what was agreed was that Irish people in the north could still identify as British, um, which they have the right to do so, or else Irish, and by that mean European and continuing to have those mm. rights um, and access. So I think we all agree that Northern Ireland is unique, but again, mm. the, the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom is not being changed in that Northern Ireland is still a part of the United Kingdom.
3: Okay, Not not everybody agrees that it is unique, Minister. Sorry to cut across you, but not everybody believes that it is unique and uh, some uh, looking for Scottish independence would say that it's not unique uh, that they've as much a a right to the type of (laughs) situation uh, that Northern Ireland might uh, end up enjoying under this agreement and some of the Brexiteers are are very concerned that this will weaken the border with uh, Scotland.
10: Well, I mean, I'm not going to comment on Scotland. What happens within the United Kingdom and Scotland is a part of the United Kingdom is very much a matter for them. But what happens in Northern Ireland when you have citizens who, um, who, I suppose, identify as Irish citizens and those who identify as British, it is a very unique scenario. And this is why these negotiations for the past two years have been so difficult but again the political declaration in terms of the future relationship we heard Donald Tusk saying last night that we still have to finalise that and that will hopefully be done by Tuesday and I think again what the Prime Minister will most likely and, and again without preempting it, is to look forward to the future relationship and, and again this is this is not what we ever want to invoke the backstop is not something that we want to ever use but at the same time the commitments that were made last December not just um, for us in terms of the border and the peace process, but also um, in terms of Northern Ireland and its connection and uh, being a part of the United Kingdom, I be- do believe that both teams from the UK and the EU side have tried to address those and have addressed those in the best way that they can. So what I, I hope, and I think we all hope, and I'm sure you do as well, mm-hmm. is that we can agree this, that, that we can Um, move on to the next stage and that come the 29th of March next year that we're leaving with an agreement with an understanding as to what we're trying to achieve on the future relationship and I think importantly as well there's one or two other new elements to this. If we can get to that point um, from the the 1st of April next year the transition period will kick in. At the moment it's due to finish on the 31st of December 2020 so just Mm -hmm. under two years but six months before that period Um, We have three possible scenarios that would take place. You have firstly that there would be uh, an acknowledgement that we're moving towards the free trade agreement and one that would address all of these concerns. The second, if there's a feeling that that's not where we should be or we're not, we need more time, there's a possibility to extend the transition period once and there's no set date on that. And then the third and final option only is that we invoke the backstop. So there's, you know, there are a lot of things to take place before this might even come into place and we hope it never does and really I think that's what we need to focus on and and move forward and the Prime Minister I think was very clear last night in saying we want a close relationship, we want to build um, what we've achieved to date and, and obviously try and provide the Brexit that people have voted for but obviously I think that's difficult given the fact that There are very many uh, different
3: views as to what Brexit means to different people. That's it. Well, uh, whatever has been achieved will be judged undoubtedly over the next couple of weeks, a crucial couple of weeks. Uh, We leave it there for the moment, though, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us Uh, this morning. uh, That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee.
2: Michael, Michael
3: Reed Reid on LMFM Now yeah, let's talk once again about the turf, the turf wars, the money, the cocaine, the anxiety and fear and danger that people are experiencing in Drogheda with local Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. Good morning to you and thanks for joining Good morning, us. Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on. As we've been hearing it's been very bad uh, and uh, looks set to get worse.
11: Well, it's appalling that that's been visited on a very small number of people on, 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 on the good name of the town and obviously on the life of people who feel threatened and feel very distressed and worried about the attacks on homes, the the bomb there in the car and, uh, you know, just the, the sheer intimidation that people feel. And obviously the actions of the guardie, their presence, the increased presence, the fact that... Uh, all Leave has been cancelled, is very welcome indeed. And the people are saying two things to me. They want to see more Gardy. They welcome the, the work that they are doing. They acknowledge it. They want it to continue and they want these people, um, you know, obviously yeah. arrested and put away for, for a long period of time. But they are very distressed. People uh, touch with me uh, who are, some people live in close proximity to where some houses were, were attacked and obviously clearly they are extremely distressed and worried about it.
3: Why has it got so bad?
11: Well, again, obviously, clearly, this has been. I understand. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I'm not familiar with all of aspects of it, but I do know in the public domain there was a significant attack on an individual last summer, and I understand that since then there's been an escalation mm. in, in criminal tensions between people. They the Garda are mm, the well, that's
3: to do with the, the cocaine people, dealers and yeah. the, the amount of money that they're generating. But why are the dealers uh, allowed to continue? Uh, it seems without any reason for concern in a town the size of Drogheda.
11: Well, I think, Michael, the truth of the matter is that drugs are endemic in our society, whether it's cannabis or whatever. Mm. Uh, It it is a fact of life that these criminals wouldn't make money if people weren't buying the product. Well, they
3: wouldn't make money if they were arrested and uh, there's... uh this theory yeah. that the guards have been turning a blind eye on the big dealers because the big dealers have been telling the Gardaí about the people they've been selling small amounts of drugs to. So they allow them to continue as informants. The Gardaí look good because they're making arrests. In the meanwhile, the drug trade continues. The Gardaí are privy to this problem, are they not?
11: Well, I, I don't know that. And I think that's a question you should put to the guard superintendent or the Gardaí press Have Office. you
3: not heard but, this concern that people have?
11: Uh, no Michael i but I, I, well, to be honest with you, I, I am everybody is extremely concerned, but from as I see it, the Guardi are doing a fantastic job. Well this is what people
3: are saying, and, and you haven't heard it
11: uh, no, Michael, I, I just want to tell you what, what, what I believe and what I hear. but have
3: you heard people say this? that they believe that drug well, dealers, I hear, I hear, big hear, drug dealers, are acting as informants for the Gardaí, the Gardaí turn a blind eye to them, go off and arrest young folks who are spending 10 or 20 I, I euro tru- I in news.
11: Michael, I trust the Gardaí to do a very professional job in very difficult... I'm sure,
3: I, I, I I'm sure they do, do, but have you, Michael, have, you, have you, you want want heard that concern? Here? No, well, you can I, make all the points in the world if you address the question. Have you heard that concern?
11: I've heard it from you, but I haven't heard it from other people. No, I haven't. Uh, but i do know that that uh, people have said to me that uh, some people are saying that but they're not saying it to me at first hand and i want to say absolutely that i fully support the Guardi. i believe they're doing a fantastic job mm. they put their lives on the line as well mm. and 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 it, well, it's been said to it, it, me
3: it, it, it's been said Michael, to me by I people who say be, it's I, been said I, to I, me I, by people who say they've reported drug dealers uh, who've been Uh, operating quite openly to the Gardaí, numerous occasions uh, and that nothing happened. Imelda Munster, Munster, your Oireachtas Oireachtas constituency colleague uh, said the same thing, that people have this concern, that that's the rumour that's been abound for a long time in the programme yesterday.
11: My Oireachtas colleague has that concern I've no doubt she's bringing it to the of the Garda Superintendent. She 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 no has, doubt yes. she's bringing it to the attention of the Minister for Justice. And if she wishes to share the information with me, I'd be very happy to make uh, my own separate contact about it. Mm. But I have not been told that.
3: She also made a uh, remarkable uh, claim of the programme yesterday. She can say, answer, that, that,
11: she can yeah, answer mm. for... What she says, okay, but
3: there was a remarkable claim made on the program yesterday, and as a TD for the constituency where people are living in fear of their lives, I'd like you to respond to it because she said that one family, one family, was threatened that their house would be attacked. The family told the gardaí their their house was going to be attacked that night. The gardaí never turned up. The, the, The house was attacked.
11: Yeah, well, that's that's an appalling vista. Clearly, if she would share that detail with me, I'd be very happy to act on it immediately, as I'm sure she has. Uh, but again, uh, I don't know the facts, and she knows the facts, so I have no doubt that the Gardaí will properly and professionally investigate that point, and uh, I have no issue with with bringing that to the attention of the highest Gardaí in the land and to the Minister for Justice, and that's what the Gardaí are there for, and I repeat, I have every confidence in the Gardaí, I have every confidence and support them in their work, and I appreciate fully the risks that they are taking on our behalf, and I believe that the guardi are putting uh, resources now into the town mm. uh, that will help, hopefully, prevent further uh, further incidents. I, you know, but it's a professional decision. I'm obviously very critical of the number of guardi that are not in Drogheda compared to other towns of the same size. Uh, but I absolutely support them in their work.
3: Are, are some guardi reluctant to work in Drogheda?
11: Um Well. Michael, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think Gardie go wherever they're asked to go.
3: Mm. Uh, but have you heard that some Gardie are w- reluctant to work in Drogheda?
11: I haven't at all, Michael. That's first I've heard it from your good self. No, I haven't heard that at all.
3: Right, uh, but... Uh, I, I think
11: a lot of your questions, Michael, are questions you should be putting to the guardie, because I'm not a police person but uh, they are the people who can answer all of those very serious uh, cases and points that you're making. Hmm. Uh, but I know guards are are they're directed where to work. I, you know, in other words, if you're a guard, you're told you can't work within a certain distance of your home, and wherever you're sent, you you go if you want to keep your job. And uh, you know, that's 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 the truth as I know it.
3: Do you believe morale is good in Drogheda guard Station?
11: Uh, I can't answer that question. Uh, I I will be visiting the guardy over the weekend. Um I believe that any guard I meet personally are doing a very professional job and I respect and I'm I, you know I, mm. I mean if if people are unhappy I'm quite sure that they, they 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 would express that if they want changes you know the the appropriate person Michael to go to would be uh, you know their union or their their superintendent or whoever uh, you know and that, that's that's the way it is but I you know, I just think the Gardaí are, you know, are they need they need to catch these criminals. That's the only thing I'm interested in: that they have the resources to catch them, and that they do catch them, and that's what people want.
3: All right, and uh, when you're living in a, a town uh, that uh, is telling stories uh, that might have been scripted and breaking bad or something, people have reason to be concerned, uh, and there is much concern, there's very serious individuals, very violent, it would seem, uh, and people are afraid to leave their houses. In fact, they're being told yeah. not to leave their houses uh, uh, on occasion. And as you say, it comes down to a small number of, uh, of individuals who have yeah. found themselves in a position where they can terrorise a town the size of of 40,000 people. It really is incredible, isn't it? Uh, And why is that the case? Uh, You say it's because of drugs. So why are there so many drugs in in Drogheda? Uh, Isn't it just shameful the grip that drugs have got on the town of Drogheda?
11: Well, I think, Michael, the fact is that uh, people who take uh, illegal drugs, uh, it affects their health short-term and long-term. If they weren't consuming the drugs, there wouldn't be a market for them. So obviously... Drugs are taken by people who feel that they get some high out of it or whatever the issue is. I'm talking about the poor unfortunate that we see staggering
3: down the road with their eyeballs rolling in their head, uh, who are as much a victim in all of this as anybody else. Uh, How has it got to a situation where a town this size has been uh, allowed to uh, come into the grip of, of these dealers like this?
11: Well, again, Michael, I was a teacher for many years in Drogheda. I know thousands of young people who are now parents. I meet them regularly. Uh, and I'm aware of, obviously, the strains and the stresses that life has on everybody. And in particular, if, if people do have a drug habit, I've called to houses where, uh, where where there has been a significant death due to a drug problem. I've attempted to, to find a solution to that. Um, I have met people whose windows have been broken. And uh, I've tried to get that issue resolved financially for them. And the problem is that quite often in the next few days, those windows are broken again by people who are intimidating, not just the person who has the debt, mm. but, they're, but they're intimidating other members of their family. And I brought that to the direct attention of the guardie. And, uh, you know, I am very concerned, as you are, about mm. all of this. Um, and I feel that more resources, and that's the point I made in the dawl yesterday, Michael, mm. uh, there should be more resources put permanently into Drada. there should be more community
3: policemen. Is it a permanent problem, do you think? I, I mean, when you hear of a few arrests and then 20 fellows coming over from Manchester uh, willing to take part I- in this feud, uh, you'd have to wonder to yourself, uh, is this a long-term thing? Is this something that will go on for years the way it did in Limerick?
11: Well I think there's a huge difference between Limerick and Drogheda um, and that obviously what happened in, in Limerick that went on for many many years and it terrorised the whole city and obviously clearly Drogheda is at the centre of a, of, of a gang war at this moment in time. The Gardaí are very well aware of it, the Minister for Justice is well aware of it and uh, I believe that they are expecting to make significant uh, arrests shortly. And I, I'm hopeful that would be the case, um, but obviously, clearly, it, it, you know that's that that is the job of the Garda, and clearly everybody is worried, and I'm as worried as you are. And I feel that supporting the Garda, and if you have complaints or if you have issues in relation to to the issues that you that you you, you have been raised with you and with, with my Rocktas colleagues, if I'm given that information, I will act on it immediately. And the information I have been given. Uh, and you know, as I said, I had somebody speaking to yesterday who was being intimidated by the fact that they live next door to to one of these homes which have been attacked. The guardy acted very promptly and very quickly uh, to you know to to help and assist that person as best they can. But clearly, until these people are in jail, uh, you know, this this, the, this these issues will arise. But you know, I think the guardy are well aware of how difficult it is. I have not been listening to your programme um, yesterday because I, I've, I've been mm-hmm. in the Iraq this year. I'm here today as well. But I, I don't know if you've had the Garda superintendent on your programme. Uh, but I think that would be very important that, that, that he would go on if, if you haven't had him already. Okay. Uh, to reassure people and to you know to to explain hmm. how they de- how they are dealing with the with the situation. Okay, I think that would be
3: helpful. Some okay, of them. Yeah, we we did hear from uh, the Gareth superintendent through LMFM News uh, earlier in the week. Uh, we have to leave it there though for the moment though. And thank right. you, thank you, you, much thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. That's been for TD for loud for it out.
2: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
3: on, on LMFM. As you heard this morning, Ashburn Garda are appealing uh, for information following an armed robbery at a uh, bookmakers yesterday evening. Sergeant Colum McNally is in Ashburn Station and on the line now. Good morning, Sergeant. Uh, what more can you tell us about this raid?
12: Good morning, Michael. Um, firstly, I'd like to issue an appeal in relation to any information that members of the public may have in relation to this appeal. We're looking for any witnesses to contact us here at Ashburn on, uh, on 801-0600. Uh, it happened yesterday evening at about a quarter past seven. Uh, uh, two-man gang uh, uh, approached the Sports bookmakers on Frederick Street here in Ashburn. One of them entered the store wearing uh, a distinctive motorcycle helmet, silver and colour with a red badge on the front, brandishing a handgun, approached a member of staff and uh, took the proceeds to till and left the store, uh, leaving the scene on the motorbike headed in the direction of Dublin. I suppose we're appealing to anyone who perhaps witnessed the incident itself, or indeed has any information regarding the motorcycle, as it may help us with our inquiries.
3: Okay, and as you say, the number for Ashburn Garda Station is 018010600 Thank you indeed, Sergeant Colm McNally speaking to us there from Ashburn Garda Station. Now this Sunday marks World Day of Remembrance for road traffic victims and joining us once again this year is Michael O'Neill, uh, father of Fiona who lost her life on uh, the roads of Monaster Boys uh, some 17 years ago along with her boyfriend uh, just before they were to travel to Australia back in November of 2001. Indeed, Michael, you've been uh, talking to us uh, about this particular day for many years uh, and uh, people will remember you coming onto the programme uh, and uh, beginning uh, the remembrance in this country uh, by uh, setting up a, a, a day with Frederick O'Donovan. That's right, Michael.
13: Uh, that was in 2006. And it happened to fall on the 19th of November, which is our anniversary. And uh, I couldn't understand why I, I, I found it on the internet and uh, when I discovered what day it was and it coincided with Dominic and Fiona's anniversary, I decided to do something about it. And Father Iggy, you heard it and got in contact with me. And uh, from from then on, we have been having just our 12th year now in, in Drahada and thankfully it has been spread throughout the country. Mm.
3: Uh, indeed, there'll be events on Sunday across uh, the country, and the original uh, event, the quarter past one mass at the Augustinian, uh, will take place again this Sunday.
13: That's right, yes, and we, we, we hope to have all the local uh, politicians and uh, emergency services will be in attendance. This year we, we are honoured to have uh, Maya Modoc of the RSA. Uh, to give a little talk at the the Mass. We are very grateful to her for doing that for
3: us. It's an opportunity, as it is every year, to highlight uh, road safety and uh, a chance for us all to stop and think and do the things that we know we should be doing on on the roads to protect ourselves and others. But it's also a very significant day for people like yourself who've lost loved ones on the roads to come together and reflect.
13: It it, it is. Now, I was up, up at the launch... Uh, on Tuesday, up in, in in Smock Alley in Dublin, there, and some of the stories that were are told up there, uh, uh, were very heartbreaking from parents and siblings of people that have lost their lives on the road, Michael.
3: Mm. Well, it doesn't get any easier, I'm sure, Michael.
13: It doesn't. It doesn't. No. It doesn't. It doesn't. Mm. It, it's, you you learn to cope with it, Michael. But it's it's all always there, and rightfully so, because. Mm we we can we should not forget our loved ones that have been lost in, in, a, in any shape or form mm.
3: 17 years on that's 17 birthdays, 17 christmas uh, yeah. 17 years uh, with an empty seat at the table uh, different occasions that take place in every family uh, that somebody's missing for
13: that's right michael that's right and and uh, as i say we learn us uh, touching in the club that we don't want to be in uh, We learn some way to cope and to carry on as best we can. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, And if it is an opportunity to send a a message to people, what would your message be to anyone listening to us this morning?
13: Be aware when you're on the road, Michael. Be, Be careful. Don't rush anywhere. Give yourself plenty of time and slow down.
3: Okay, and obviously you'd invite people to the Augustinian on Sunday as well, Mike.
13: Everybody's Mm -hmm. invited to the Augustinian on Sunday. Uh, We will have the the usual colour party from the ex-soldiers will be there. Mm. And uh, as I said, the emergency services and their local politicians and that.
3: Okay, well, it is a a very important day, uh, I think, for anybody uh, who has lost someone and uh, one uh, that uh, they appreciate as well uh, in terms of uh, the solidarity that each person attending shows uh, to everybody. Michael, we leave it there for the moment uh, for this year, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you, Michael, and thanks to everybody in LMFM. Thank you, as always. You. Uh, that's uh, Michael O'Neill. Uh, that uh, special mass will take place in the Augustinian Church in Drogheda at a quarter past one this Sunday. Now that's where our programme comes to its conclusion for today because our time has run out and is once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on our website, LMFM.ie, this afternoon. Before we go, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. i Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at. 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,